Actually, there is a purpose to this program, although it may not seem so to the naked eye, if I may use that expression on television. Uh, the inherent love that I have for music is really why I'm here. The money means nothing. The money is nothing, consequently it means nothing. <laughs> it is very little. But uh, it is a desire to illustrate music, uh, taking sound to sight, more or less. Across whatever you listen to podcasts on, this is the Silent Film Music Podcast with Ben Modell. It's the podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for, perform, and reflect upon performances of live musical accompaniments to silent films. I'm your host, Ben Modell. I'm a silent film accompanist, historian, and presenter, but not necessarily in that order. Welcome to the podcast. This is episode 50. Nothing too special about this show, just the number ends at the zero. We are recording at the end of July for posting at the beginning of August. I'm joined, as always, by uh, co-producer and co-host Kerr Lockhart. Hi, Ben. So we're not quite the dog days uh, of summer, although we've just gone through a heat wave, but there's still plenty of good summer left. And a lot of good summer shows. People go see out and see some films. To yeah. Do that. This past Tuesday, we did a live stream of the winning of Barbara Worth for the Cinema Arts Center. We're going to continue doing those every other month. I've got a whole bunch of vi- home video projects. We can talk about that a little a little later. In June, I had an opportunity a few times to accompany serials, both not only American, but a, a film that was made in Italy that was heavily inspired, I think, by the serials made in the U.S. and as well as in France. I accompanied a few programs for the Women and the Silent Screen Conference, which had its opening program held at MoMA on June 1st, and then most of the screenings and talks and seminars were held up at Columbia University at the Lenfest Center for the Arts, and there were a few of us who accompanied. I know Makia Matsumura played for some shows, as did Donald Sosin, and Liz Magnus, a wide variety of accompanists. And if you're spending a few days watching serials and other films like that, you definitely want a variety of music. I've been very interested in serials for a bunch of years. I hadn't really paid attention to them that much. I knew they they were made, they existed. But some years ago, Janine Basinger, who founded the film program at Wesleyan University back in the late 60s. And she asked me to put together a program of silent serials. And I thought, okay, that's that shouldn't be too difficult. And then I tried to find them. They do not survive well at all. Most archives have bits and pieces, half a chapter of this, a couple of chapters of that. There are some exceptions where an archive may have an entire run of a serial or all but chapter 12 or something. Huh. Uh, the Library of Congress seemed to have a, a larger concentration of surviving serials than anyone, any of the others. And, you know, I, I do projects with the Library of Congress and I'm down there to accompany shows. So I was able to go through with Rob Stone what their holdings were, but it's still a handful of chapters of this. And they really were the first series television. <laughs> like series television or limited series, as we call them with streaming now, where you had these serials being made and released in the 
early teens, 1912, 1913, 14, which is really when they popped, at least here, where you had a film shown in your theater every week with the same performers playing the same characters in a continuing story. And much like episodic television or limited series, today the first episode is tons of exposition. A lot of serials, the first chapter would be three reels and the others would be two. And then plot twists for a dozen chapters and then it all gets wrapped up at the end. In reading trade magazines, as I have over the last year or two from 1916 and 1917, that was a draw for a lot of cinemas that you had the new uh, episode of Gloria's Romance or Pearl of the Army or The Iron Claw. or There's so many serials being made. The, the popularity of them is just absolutely astounding. And because the popularity uh, of a lot of that sort of dipped uh, after the Great War, the survival rate, like like is the case with a lot of films from the teens, is not great. The other shift that happened after the Great War was that the women were no longer the big heroes or heroines of, of the films. There was pushback from censorship groups and morality groups and women's clubs and, and the like uh, against seeing you know women running around on motorcycles, leaping off of trains, diving off of bridges, being in danger and that sort of thing. And so... The serials from the 1920s, it's mainly guys and maybe a mysterious woman who's, who's a, a, a sub-villain or something. And, and, you know, and as somebody said, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. Because yes. this is so interesting. The other thing, the big movement that happens uh, in the middle of the teens is that fewer women are directing and more men are directing. Yeah. And, it, yeah. and that had to shift it. And now we are back in serialized television a new peak of serialized television a lot of it is driven by female creators and we're also having the debate among people distributing television should we parcel it out week by week or do we give you everything all at once yeah this is an active debate but it seems as though the modus operandi of 1914 is really working better for many of the streamers uh, to have Going that, one, uh, one at a time. The water curl, cooler factor. Well, did you, yeah. Did you see yes. such and such? What's going to happen? Well, the thing about binging anything is that you sit down, you binge it, and then you have to wait, <laughs> wait for them your to do another season. <laughs> or, they, okay, I've seen all of this, now what? Yeah, so, and you're yeah. going around looking for somebody to talk to about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah which was difficult during the pandemic. But, yeah. uh, so... These screenings at the Women in the Silent Screen Conference, uh, a number of what, what I was playing for anyway, were serials or serial chapters or what survived of them. And uh, what was interesting for me was the challenge of playing for them because it's tension and release, tension and release, uh-oh, intrigue, mysterioso, chase, and then we're on to something else. And it's one thing to play, it's 1915 and you play for the latest episode of The Iron Claw, and then a comedy short, and a newsreel, and then whatever the dramatic feature is. Uh, but to do a bunch of serials can be difficult, because there's a lot of the same dramatic arcs that go on over and over. And so... This happens this, with historical film. We we watch it in ways that the original viewers never did. Well, sure. <laughs> exactly. So you wouldn't have a shorts program. You would have a, a, a short or two than the feature. So... For me, I had to keep in mind how do I keep myself fresh and also try not to do so much of the same thing over and over 
Um, I don't know if you hear that, but I live in Manhattan to keep it fresh musically for the audience as well. Although they're watching a different film, you know, one after another. So that that certainly helps. Do you have, um, I don't know, tricks or dibs to, no, uh, to fight monotony? There are two things you can do. One is, you know, keep going into different keys. Try not to get stuck playing diminished chords, although they're really great for tension. <laughs> Now at uh, yeah. at at MoMA, what instrument were you playing? Oh, so for the shows at MoMA, I played the piano. One of the so, things I one of the things I'll do in choosing an instrument sometimes, where I have the choice, is I'll think of what era this was and would there have been a theater organ in a lot of cinemas at the time. So that rules out the theater organ for early early teens and mid teens things, with some exceptions, and sometimes it's do I really want to go through the work of setting this thing up for just one show? Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, when I played for To Save and Project back in January, I knew I was going to play for the Edward Everett Horton shorts at one time. And then later that day for the Fire Brigade, which you really need the organ. So I thought, oh, it's totally worth it. We'll set up the organ. So this was this was all all piano. And then the shows at up at the Lenfest Center for the conference. I This is all di digital I brought my digital keyboard. Makia brought hers. Uh, Donald brought his, et cetera, et cetera. So I stuck with with the solo piano. I should think one danger might be with piano uh, and serials um, would be a lot of uh, you know repeating chords and and the get tiring your wrist out. Yeah, uh, banging. Definitely. Well, yes, and this is so you know in the moment while I'm playing, I'm trying to think. Okay, try another key play it another key you have what key have i not played in yet and also to to remind myself that holding a chord instead of hitting it over and over and trying to think of the piano uh, less as a percussion instrument even though that's what a piano is but you know you can hold sustained chords and try to just try to find you know it's a fun challenge to say okay uh what else you got what else can i do here have i done this already and uh, just keep watch, watching the screen. One of the things that was fun was that the first of the two programs I played at the Women in the Silent Screen Conference were serials that didn't survive as complete chapters. I think there was an episode of uh, The Purple Mask with Grace Cunard and uh, one or two others. And I was sensing the audience response in the in the room. And I was thinking it, maybe it's not really grabbing people or maybe this is, you know, it's a lot of people from academia and maybe they're just taking it in. But the second program, if I'm not mistaken, had serial chapters that were either complete or complete enough. So they were full stories. And the reaction from the audience, same bunch of people, was completely different. They were just able to connect with the story and the story's emotional arcs much better. And so there were laughs in certain in places, and uh, uh, you, I, you could just sense the vibe in the room that the, the people were connecting. And that affected my playing. I think I didn't have to work as hard, or I felt like, oh, I don't have to create as much tension and drama because I can sense audibly and just from the back of my neck that, that the, uh, the audience of people were really, really into the films. They're engaged, yeah. Yeah. So with the clear understanding that this uh, music may not stand on its own as music, 
yeah. as as much as many of your scores. Yeah. Let's hear some some serial examples. One of the films I accompanied at MoMA on June first, which is not necessarily a serial. Uh, it's a film called The President's Special, and it was one of those films where I thought, oh, I I, I hope I can get a screener of it because I don't know this film. And then I looked it up, and sure enough, I had played for it the previous September during MoMA's uh, series of newly restored Edison and Biograph shorts. And I thought, oh, this is the one with the train. So there is a lot of tension and release in in the film because uh, there's a, a plot point of somebody trying to warn a train before some accident happens which is the plot of a number of other you know hazards of hell and kind of serials so we'll we'll listen to some of of this in the context of a film that isn't wasn't necessarily part of a serial this is live in performance on june 1st 2022 yours truly at the steinway in titus 2 the titus 2 auditorium accompanying a few minutes of the president's special in performance at the Museum of Modern Art's Titus II Theater 
in June of 2022, accompanying the President's special on Two Wheel Edison Short. It looks absolutely amazing. A new restoration done by MoMA, working from, I believe, camera negative. And the director, uh, the Charles Braben, is a major director yes. of the period. And Charles Ogle, the co-star, is, I believe, film's first Frankenstein monster Okay. for Edison. So oh, all right. Well, lots of historical goodies there. Yeah. yeah, and if you ever get a chance to see the president's special, one of the things that you'll notice in, is there are scenes at the home of somebody, a couple, where somebody uh, goes off. There's a train or a car approaching. Actually, there's two different locations where they clearly built the set of this the uh, this person's home and also I think the railroad engineer's shack or whatever you want to call it on train tracks because A, the tablecloths are blowing like mad, but out the window of the back of the set, you can see the train or a car coming up the road or the rails in the direction of the building that we're supposedly inside. And it's very uh, very interesting and clever use of staging and set building and perspective. Unlike a serial, though, the film takes about twice as long as, as a serial might have to tell the same story. Um, but that's just, that's just the way the film was, we, was, we, was made at the time. We need an East Coast equivalent to John Benson, who, uh -huh. who finds all the uh, Hollywood locations. Uh, we need someone to figure out where in East Orange... Yeah, where in uh, Jersey or Fort Lee or the Bronx where they where they shot this. But if you ever get a chance to see these films, they're not on home video. They were shown as part of a, a month-long series at MoMA that was supposed to have run in March of 2020. I think three or four of the programs were run and then everything shut down. So it just got rebooted well, last September. Another thing that got rolled over from the beginning of the pandemic was a screening of the film Philibus that I was supposed to play in April of 2020 at the Cinema Arts Center. And that got, you know, shelved temporarily. And as things started to reopen at the Cinema Arts Center, we resumed our monthly in-person screening. We started in May with The Cameraman, and in June we showed Philibus. Uh, now, Philibus is, I looking here, is an Italian feature film adventure with a mysterious sky pirate making daring heists. Yes, and, and it's a woman it's masquerading a as a man to be part of the, you know, the escapades of this of this film and it's Italian film that survives at the iFilm Museum I believe it's the John Desmet collection and a restoration was undertaken by iFilm Museum and I believe Milestone and Milestone Film and Video released it and it's got the the disc has two scores on it I think it's it's the Montalto and then also Donald Sosen and there's a booklet and there's all these great extras and I I think when they finished the, the work on it they, it, they ran it at the Anthology Film Archives for about a week. But the film itself, when you look at it, you realize, and, and it was released, it's a five-rail film, but it was released with the option of running it either as a feature or as separate one-reel chapters. So each reel break is kind of at a story break point. But it's definitely influenced by, if not American serials, then the ones that were being made in France Right, sure. Uh, Phantomas and uh, the vampires, and that's what's coming to mind as I'm reading oh, these descriptions. Oh, sure. You know, you realize that serials were, it wasn't just an American thing or American and they weren't in France. You know, 
uh, for somebody like me who associates cereals with uh, Buck Rogers. Yeah. Because that was on TV when I was a kid. Yeah, with lizards walking around rocks, supposed to be dinosaurs, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, everything was paper mache. Mm. Uh, At this point, cereals were at the top of the industry. Oh, yeah, there was... the production values and the the filmmaking is 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 excellent, and like I said, they were huge draws. So people kept coming back to see this over and over. And so Philobus has a, a similar kind of there's a similar challenge of of tension and release, tension and release for for me to, to go through. What again was fun for me was the show itself. This is the second in person show at the Cinema Arts Center after reopening. They reopened a little later some, than some other cinemas, but that was only because, or largely because of construction work on, on renovations that had, had to be postponed because of the pandemic, and then it just took longer to reopen. But the second wave of reopening that's happened in the last few months, the, after the first reopening in the summer and fall of last year, there's much more joy in people gathering in a theater to watch something. Whereas uh, last year, was, what I heard a lot of was, oh, it's great to be in the theater together. It's great to be together again. But I, there, there's a lot more, I don't know, just the spirits are, are, are a little different. And so I wasn't sure if people were going to get into it, but there were two things that happened. Number one, we had a pretty full house. And this is a movie no one's heard of. With a title that means nothing, starring people that no one has heard of from another country. And yet we had a real nice turn. I think people just really wanted to come out. And they had a great time. And they really got into the story. And that's something, again, listening to the audience, sensing the vibe in the room. And and again, this is a, a, a show where I opted to play piano for the film instead of the theater organ, which is what I usually use at the Cinema Arts Center. Uh, they have all the equipment. I just show up with my laptop. And we go into, you know, plug it into this house sound system. But in this case, I wanted to use the upright because it it just seemed like it might fit a little bit better. Mm -hmm. So this was, again, me listening to the audience. And uh, it's it's the the music you'll hear isn't super different from what you might have heard when I was playing at MoMA. But there was something about June of 2022 where I found myself accompanying a lot of serials where there wasn't as much of a dramatic arc as there might have been in a typical dramatic feature. People always ask me if I have a favorite thing to play for or do I get tired of certain things. And even if it's something that's a challenge or something I'm playing a lot of, then that's an opportunity for me to grow or try to anyway. So mm-hmm. I'm, okay, I haven't played in this key yet, so I'll try that. I always have to remind myself and I have a little blue index card on the music rack of my piano for all the live stream where it says in giant letters you can always play less <laughs> and i've underlined the word less because uh, i'm as guilty as anybody as, as sounding like i'm being play, paid by the note and so i try to to you know say oh, well what what can i use the piano more like uh, a chamber orchestra mm-hmm. than a percussion instrument because a lot of the drama is up on the screen, I don't have to do anything. But what was fun for me about the show of Philibus was hearing the, the fun people were having uh, as somebody sitting out in a patio sipping tea or something, and then a, somebody in a giant metal cylinder slowly descends just 
six feet of stage of them complete and the you know this is the, the wonderful thing about silent film is that something that should make a noise doesn't have to as long as nobody's lets on that they're hearing it and then you know uh Philibus hops out and kidnaps the guy you know uh sprays some poison gas that, that makes him fall asleep and then kidnaps him and people are just getting into it that it's it's a little a little wacky but it's it's just the fun that people were having was something that inspired my, my playing so we're so try great. to imagine that as you listen to this yeah imagine yeah. surprising things happening constantly yeah. and i don't know if you'll hear it this is recorded with a the, my mic at, at the back of an upright piano and you may not hear the audience quite so much but you'll get to hear me play tension and release and try to make make something a little different just for my own sanity uh, this is a few minutes from my live score to Philibus, the mysterious air pirate from 1915, uh, from a performance in mid-June 2022. performance at the Cinema Arts Center in Huntington, New York, Long Island's showplace for our independent cinema, classic cinema, art cinema. Yours through a company, Philibus, the Mysterious Air Pirate from 1915.
want to see what it looks like, definitely buy the Blu-ray and or DVD. It's available from Milestone Films. And uh, it's a wonderful uh, preservation and restoration done by the Eye Film Museum uh, in, the, in the Netherlands. You know, your comments about how, how to play and, and, and how not to overplay kind of puts me in mind. We talk over and over again, but I don't think it can be overemphasized. The special kind of engagement that an audience has with a silent film when it is working properly. It's almost as if you go inside the film much more than you do with a film with synchronized sound. Oh, um, absolutely. You go and into that. Is, and it makes yeah. me think of, uh, we did not get a chance last episode to talk about the book you're developing about the universe. Yeah. I mean, it's something I call the silent film universe. And that's the name of the book. For those of you who subscribe to my blog, you'll be familiar with what will wind up in the book because it, it started out as a series of about 65 blog posts that I did last year. And it's been crafted into a manuscript now. But I, it's all about this trance-like state that you enter into during a silent film show, especially if you're in a theater. There, yeah, there's something almost transformative about it. And so you want to, as a musician, keep, keep people's ears occupied without getting in the way. And it's interesting, everybody you know, who accompanies films says that, even people who, whose music you think is really something that calls attention to itself. But I think some of it is the ability to establish a musical language at the beginning of the film to the point that you can uh, accept whatever that, that musical world is and then you don't pay attention to it for the rest of the film, whether it's Gaylord Carter, who I just heard a recording of him talking after a screening where he talked about it's really important to disappear. And if you've heard Gaylord Carter's music, it's wonderful, but he's really got a lot of the stops turned on and you know you're listening to a Wurlitzer. Everything from that to just about any, any anybody else. But it, it is it is a bond that happens between the audience. And it's part of what is happening in that quote from Kevin Brownlow, where he says that with silent film, the audience is the final participant in the filmmaking process. It's all those pieces of our own existence that we bring up into the the world of the film that makes it a universal experience the book will be out i don't know when i'm still working on it i have a few friends who who are going over the manuscript and once we get another pass or two at it i'll i'll, I'll uh i'll have more but the, it's called the silent film universe and that'll that'll be a book i'll most probably put out through undercrank heaven knows if, you know you really don't have anything to do i know you no i don't just kind of <laughs> lolling around uh, looking, yeah. for, staring at the wall. Yeah. Uh, so continuing from a segment we started last month and uh, coordinating with the new book, Ernie in Kovacs Land, which is it's a pub date of November of this year, Josh Mills and, and company mm -hmm. uh, bringing out yet another Ernie Kovacs uh, product to delight us. We decided we'd talk about Ernie and music to keep with the theme of this podcast 
because more than most other comedians, he has a very special relationship with music. We're going to talk about Ernie's sort of invention of the music video. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The uh, it's It's fascinating to see how he used this technique and how early he started playing around with it. Uh, the book, or Ernie and Kovac Clan, is being published by Fantagraphics, and it's edited by Josh Mills, Pat Thomas, and myself. It's just going to be crammed with images and uh, articles and things Ernie wrote or scribbled or doodled uh, in a very inventive and fun way, and so that'll be out at the end of the year. Ernie had a very basic working knowledge of classical music, picture postcard stuff, as, as Edie Adams <laughs> called it. And once they started dating or somewhere along the line there, she, having been a Juilliard graduate herself, informed Ernie's uh, musical appreciation. And he really just took to it. And one of the things he does in his specials for ABC uh, 1961 is something he calls sound into sight. These music videos that there's one where there's a, a bunch of surgeons uh, doing an operation and the music is from the Firebird Suite. Another one where there's a, some people playing poker while you hear the beginning of Beethoven's Fifth. famous of these sequences is a street scene, very dark film noir street scene done with the music of Bartok's Concerto for Orchestra. There's a moment somewhere in my past where I was able to figure out what that music was. I'd seen this seven or eight minute segment on, on the Best of Ernie Kovacs and it's also on, on the specials. The credit roll at the end of the Ernie Kovacs shows, the specials in particular, were full of jokes. So you'd have somebody credited for being the assistant script person, and then there would be a, a one-liner, and then something like you'd see in the margins of Mad Magazine. And then the music would just say, music by Bubbles, Bartok, and Hank Haydn. <laughs> and, and it doesn't say what the piece was, and if you didn't know who this was, uh, you, you were stuck. And uh, there's a piece... I, I finally figured out what it was years ago. Uh, there's a, one of these music pieces where you see a bunch of people sitting around a table eating in time to a piece of music. It's from the ballet Seven Beauties by Kara Karayev. Oh, my goodness. And I stumbled onto it. I forget why. That's a deep uh, cut. Yeah, it really is. And and But I remembered him mentioning the composer's name and saying... Uh, uh, Kara Karayev, if I, if I may use that expression on television. And then I tried to find, how, all right, who's Kara Karayev and what pieces, and um, I forget exactly how I stumbled onto it. 
But I thought he was getting fancy. I watched uh, Kovacs on music today, and mm. there is a straight-ahead performance of Via Yobush's uh, Bacchianus Brasileiras number five. That yeah. is one of my favorite <laughs> bits of, of music uh, video. It's for vocalese and eight cellos. And what you see on screen is Edie Adams basically in, in a medium shot, as well as the cellists. And they are matted over one another in a form that is called video feedback, where you point a television camera at the monitor of its own shot, and you have multiple iterations of what the image is, like an infinity mirror. Her performance is absolutely uh, breathtaking. And there, there's so many things in that in that whole special that are uh, phenomenal. But what I realized about the Concerto for Orchestra, once I got a recording of it, and I started listening to it over and over and over, and I realized, because these sound into sight pieces, some of them you could tell that they were choreographed uh, to the music, like the musical office with the Esquivel. Those things are pretty easy because they're cartoony. But with especially the Concerto for Orchestra, if you know the piece itself really well and then you watch the video again, you see that every shot is actually something that is akin to choreography, except that it's either camera movement, a type of shot, uh, when there's a dissolve to a close-up of a cat's face, it matches a, a, a like a little flute line, and then when the next thing happens musically, we cut to a wide shot. A lot of the times, if you're looking for a linear narrative on screen, you won't see it. Because it isn't there, but what we're watching is dictated by the musical phrases that that are happening. So the long, slow tracking shots in or out of the head and tail of the of the sequence are meant to be an, a, a cinematic equivalent or a form of choreography that matches the music. I do wonder whether his director, a lot of these. TV directors in the classical field, somebody like an, uh, the late Emil Ardolino, read music and they would direct from a score. And if they were doing a broadcast of an opera, they'd have the score marked up as though it were a script. And I do wonder, as I look at Concerto for Orchestra, did his director have a score or did was Ernie calling the cuts? Or, you know, it, was, but, it was Ernie. It was yeah. definitely Ernie. Um, and he... He, he is either the credited director or credited co-director on, on the specials. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that's really phenomenal about those music pieces is that you look at them and you think that, oh, each shot is cut. It's a splice. It's an edit. And mm -hmm. it's not. Mm -hmm. Those are, and you can tell where they spliced tape because this is a doink. Yeah. You know, where the picture jumps every couple of minutes maybe. But those are all sustained performance takes. So... All the camera movement, all the movement that Joe Michaelis is doing or Jolene Brand or anybody on camera has all been mapped out ahead of time and rehearsed. And this is why, you know, you, you hear the stories that, oh, Kovacs went way over budget and, you know, they were taped on a Sunday, but they would go 
go way into triple gold in overtime. Well, when you watch one of these things and think they had to do this in one take, well, well of course they, they <clears throat> couldn't edit tape to tape in Ernie's lifetime. So yeah, well, yeah, edit, yeah, editing yeah. Was you, with, editing was with scissors. Yeah, <laughs> scissors or, or razor blades. So so that what you're seeing on camera is performed by the camera operators and the cast and the prop people to a recording that is playing back. And there's a, an interview that Ernie Kovacs gave in the summer of 1961 on a program for the CBC, the Canadian Broadcast Company, called The Lively Arts, in which he talks about the process. And uh, in the sequence with the Firebird Suite and the operating room, there's a moment where there's a whole bunch of eye blinks that go with a piece of music. And Ernie says in this interview, you know, I'm sitting there tapping on the table in the control room. And, you know, if there's 21 eye blinks and there's one eye blink too many, then he said, we've got to go back and do it again. Oh. He said, nobody else will know, but I'll know. Mm -hmm. But those, but all those cuts are being done live in the control room on the control board. But to have the mindset to hear the music and then see what it would look like and then create that. He's giving you a visual, but yes. he's not, as you say, he's not giving you a narrative. No. He seems to be, his intention seems to be, this is how I express the music. Right. I'm it's... still interpreting the music. I think the choreography analogy is very good because a good choreographer isn't imposing something on top of the music. They are staging the music. Yeah, and, it, and it, it's in line with what Edie, his, his wife Edie Adams, said about his, his comedy. She would call it back-of-the-head comedy. <laughs> uh, an image would flash across the, a screen in the back of his head, and then he would realize it. And I think that these music pieces, all of them, you know, he would listen to these recordings and would see something and then uh, realize it and make it happen. And what must people have been thinking? thinking if they stumbled onto any of these <laughs> at somewhere between 10 30 and 11 o'clock at, at night on a thursday you know on abc yeah, right I... after the untouchables ended and we just drove past something I, I don't know if all of our listeners know some of these sequences were scored in music from the mexican band leader Esquivel. He was labeled in what was in the 90s. They called it Space Age Music. Yeah, ba ba it's, Space it's, Age Bachelor Pad. Yeah. yeah, it's 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 uh, pop music over-arranged, comically over-arranged, and you would recognize an Esquivel arrangement because the chorus is singing Zoom Zoom uh, yeah. instead of lyrics, and they're going boing in the middle of a song. Yeah. Um, and and the orchestra is, tends to go boing. So it yeah. is crazy overrange. They're fun. They're so, really, they're really, they're really fun. fun. Ernie edited Jealousy and Sentimental Journey. Yes, that's the musical office. That's and one of my favorite. The favorites. office, there, is no, there are no people in the office piece. It is. Well, Bobby, at one moment, Bobby Lauer is discovered on set and he's, and he's, he's surprised he runs out. <laughs> okay. So there's the exception. That, no, Bobby's yeah, the one yeah. who, by the way, <laughs> looks like he should have played the Buster Keaton story. Um, yeah, he's very short. Yeah, little guy. <laughs> and he does what I would call real world animation. Yes. Uh, drawers go in and out, uh, water coolers bubble, all right. these. By and themselves. there are people behind the set operating those objects in time to a music playback. And it's not making a satirical point about our life in the office world or anything else. It's just 
these actions, this motion, kind of goes with this music. It isn't, isn't this juxtaposition fun? And I think he just wants you to enjoy. Yeah, and, and some of the things are literal, uh, and some of them aren't. Like when uh, when Sentimental Journey starts up, uh, it's somebody whistling, and they cut to the side of a pencil sharpener that looks like somebody's mouth, you know, the little hole there looks like somebody's mouth puckered in a whistle, uh, as opposed to something where there's a, a chromatic line in, I mean, an accordion where you see a bunch of a stack of papers go up and down. So that that's something that's more literal. But these sound of the sight pieces are, are absolutely fascinating and I think that the concerto for orchestra and the story of a drop of water, I think, is his masterpiece, and it's done to the Lieutenant Kiji suite by Prokofiev. And it's something where, in, in the same interview on the CBC, uh, Ernie says that he had, he says he had Sam Goldwyn up to the house one day, and he showed him that sequence. They had just finished taping, I guess, and. He, Goldman said, wow, this is amazing. It would take, you know, if we were to do this on, on a soundstage, it would take us two weeks to film. How long did it take you? And, it's, and Herdy said, yeah, well, we worked real hard. It took us all afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and you can know that uh, uh, he'd been with Edie a long time because in Kovacs on Music, uh, there's a long sketch about trying to record a jingle. Again, deep cut because the conductor already plays an extremely uh, yes. elderly conductor who announces, right. we will now perform a cappella. And he lifts his baton and the orchestra comes in and he turns his head around. And for, I don't know, 18% of the country, that's a laugh. Yeah. <laughs> right. Because you, you have to be a musician to know that a cappella means without uh, without the orchestra, without but the he orchestra. doesn't bother to, to stop and explain it to you. <laughs> the the sound into side pieces. I mean, I, I really learned a lot about them from looking at them as visualizations of the music, as opposed to trying to figure out what is the story here. There, oh, there often isn't one. The 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 concerto in F about two women getting ready to go on a date. The end. Everybody's goes off on the date. There's one woman who's left, and instead of just pushing in on her face uh, while she looks dejected, we cut to a direct overhead shot, like you'd see in a Scorsese film or in that moment in Psycho, completely overhead shot of her sitting at her dressing table and the walls of the set fall away. And it's just such a brilliant, uh, 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 expressive way of doing that. It probably took them forever to, to line this up and get it, get it right words. That's why it's fair to call them antecedents to music video because oh, absolutely. they're about the music. They're not like, oh, here, I'm going to take this story and we'll play this track to accompany yeah. my story. No, he's, he's building out from the music. Yeah.
Silent Film Music Podcast is brought to you by Undercrank Productions, the home of the neglected and unexpected in classic film. And uh, this is an exciting month for Undercrank because we're back to Lon Chaney, courtesy of historian, collector, musician John Marsalis. This is an incredible collection. This is Lon Chaney Before the Thousand Faces, Volume 2. It's a two-disc set, and when John did the first one, we didn't call it Volume 1 because I don't think he thought there was going to be another one, Uh, but he has put together enough material sourcing from the Library of Congress, private collectors, and another archive or so. The prints look great, and John's musical scores are fantastic. Uh, These are scores he's done with uh, digital orchestral samples uh, as he did on, on the first volume and the other thing i've done is that I've, i'm reissuing the first volume on blu-ray at the same time so if you want to update or upgrade or if you haven't gotten volume one here's your opportunity to buy on blu-ray but so there are in, in this set yeah. there are two virtually complete features yes one of which has sat untouched. If you'd like to actually know all the trivia about the providence of the prince and have all the restoration, listen to episode 88 of Nitrateville podcast. And here's why you want this one. You get the earliest complete Lon Chaney film uh, Mm. by the sun's rays. This is the first complete film in which he plays a major role. And we've got two features, the Oubliette and the Scarlet Car. And there's some films like Triumph and The Scarlet Car, where you, you you can really see Cheney's acting style and acting chops, and it's much more, dare I say, contemporary in a way than the people he's in the scenes with. It's very underplayed and very compelling. Here is somebody who is really a fine, fine actor. Right, so you get to see him without Before the Thousand Faces. This is a new release from Undercrank Productions and produced for video and scored by John Marsalis. It's it's just released. It's available from Amazon, Critics' Choice, Deep Discount, Movies Unlimited, and WOW. WOW HD for, for those of you outside of the U.S. And uh, they're, they're both, both volumes are now available on both DVD and Blu-ray. And they're region-free, so yes. you're not going to have to go buy a new machine. No, it's very important. That's so, something we do with all of our releases. Everything is region-free. And, you know... John says this is but just about cleaned out what the Library of Congress has. Yeah. So uh, if you're a Cheney completist, you got you got to have this, or just a Cheney fan. Yeah. You've really got to see these films. Yep, definitely pick it up. Incidentally, I mentioned episode 88 of Nitrate Bill, and the first half of that episode is a chat with Richard Simonton, who was absolutely instrumental in Undercrank's release of the Edward Everett Horton films last year. Without him, uh, those films would probably have been lost. So yeah. that is a fascinating segment. Again, if you're into how these films survive and what needs to be done to, to keep them available... You know, Richard Simonton was there with Harold. Yeah, with Harold Lloyd, and he, he preserved a, a lot of, a lot, not only the Harold Lloyd films, but a lot of Paramount silence. And so uh, I'm very glad that uh, Michael Gebert in, included him 
on an episode, Richard Simonton's name uh, is one everybody should know, along with people like David Shepard and Serge Bromberg and, and all those other people. He's saved a lot of film. So, Ben, you've got a million projects going. We don't have time, or really it isn't appropriate to talk about a lot of sure. them. But yeah. there's things in the pipeline. But the one everybody knows about is the Raymond Griffith double feature. And I yeah. should think, I know you're deep into scoring. I don't know where you are in scoring right now, but it's teaching you some things about the films, about how they're put together. Yeah. As we record this, I'm halfway through scoring You'd Be Surprised. One of the things that I find fascinating about You'd Be Surprised is that as much as on the surface it looks like a you know drawing room whodunit like Clue, you know, the movie or show of it or something like that, because it takes place in one main room and a couple of side rooms on a large yacht or something like that. There are so many things in the film that could not happen on stage. There are blackouts that are very quick, and when the lights come back on, Whatever has just taken place could not possibly have taken place in the two and a half seconds of screen time <laughs> that have elapsed. Entire groups of people have left the room. Somebody has been murdered, uh, and nobody has heard any of this. And suddenly the lights are on, and now there's a guy on the floor with a knife in his back. Or or he's suddenly disappeared. And this couldn't um, work in... In synchronized sound, either, if you made it as No, you, there's no way to remake it. And and it's fun that the, the titles, I think, they're by Ralph Spence and Robert Benchley. And so the, the title cards are, are lots and lots of fun. Top and so writers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Spence supposedly was paid by the word for his titles. So I'm, I'm having fun going through it. Paths to Paradise was a much more intensive process in that there are a lot of separate sequences that needed various deliberate, specific scoring uh, for each of them, then it culminates in this huge chase, whereas the scoring for You'd Be Surprised, it's a little bit more the tension and release, as I, we were talking about at the top of this episode, but a little bit more comedy styling, and it's sort of, sort of a, a blend of it. And what's also fun is that with Raymond Griffith, there's so much personality, much like in the way when I accompany Harry Langdon, you're watching his eyes and his face, because you can tell what he's thinking. And with Langdon, a lot of the slapstick is happening inside his head. With Griffith, you're watching him take things in and come up with new twists or new ideas. And he's so darn charming. You just go on the ride with all of it. Uh, so it's, it's, it's been a lot of fun working on that. I mean, he's literally um, a comedian who could, who could get away with murder. Um, yeah. Really can do the most wonderfully appalling and amoral things. Yeah, <laughs> because he's and, and just says, oh, I'm so sorry. Was that you? <laughs> you know, uh, and, and and we will just we'll just go along with. It. So we're very excited about that. The the restoration work on both pictures is completed, and the grading work has begun. And I'm uh, just going to say, if you're yeah. not familiar, I know we've talked about it before. We talked about it when the Kickstarter ran. Mm. There's something to enjoy in all the undercrank releases, and I'm saying this. I'm not an employee. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I'm just saying this myself. Of everything that's that's been released, I mean, Griffith, potentially, if we had more of his films, if more had survived, and he, I think he would have the solid number five position among the great silent feature film comedians. Uh, Yeah, I think so. He had to evolve from playing a supporting role in scripted films, i.e. not comedian-driven, but script-driven films, 
But he emerged from that at the very end of the silent era. He's part of that final flowering along with Laurel and Hardy of, uh, you know, just the, the, the amazing blossoming of the medium. Again, talking you know about the, the silent film universe, he's a creation of that. And, you know, of, of anything from Undercrank, these are the most, uh, you know, have the greatest status as landmark films of the silent era of demonstrating what silent film is capable of. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm very excited to be able to bring these to fans. Thanks to the many, many, many people who backed the project, as well as the preservation work, the staff of the Library of Congress and to Paramount Pictures because the prints are part of the Paramount Collection. I got permission to access the prints so for this project. So we're grateful to a lot of people, and uh, a lot of uh, silent film fans are finally going to hear what some of us who know Griffith, Raymond Griffith, have been talking about all this time at some point later in the year. And I think that uh, between that and the Tom Mix films that we're working on now as well, uh, I'm really excited about those, because Tom Mix is a name everybody knows, and, and you say... Have you seen any of his films? And you think, oh, wait a minute. No, I haven't. And they really haven't been available. And so those, those, are, and his those sur- are fun as well. His survival rate was appalling. Going by- Oh, it's, dis- it's disgustingly awful. And, and you could say, oh, it was the Fox Vault fire in 37 because he worked for Fox. But he made 82, I think, 82 features from 1918, 1919 to 1929. You would think there would be prints of some of them. He's making six, seven films a year that some of them would have survived. But I think maybe because, well, there's always another Tom Mix film coming in in a couple of months, no one thought to take care of them. And they were never released uh, to the show at home or Kodoscope market. So there are no 16 millimeter prints. Tom Mix is another another part of the landscape I'm looking forward to, to filling out. And yeah. again, the restoration work on Sky High looks really, really good. And we're going to be reinstating the original tints which I don't think anyone has seen since 1922. So very excited about all of this. There's Andrew Simpson's Frank Borzaghi project with the film Back Pay, uh, paired with uh, something called Valley of Silent Men. Both are, fil- both are films that are not only well-made by Borzaghi, one of them is written by Francis Marion, and both of them survived because they were produced and released by Cosmopolitan Productions, which meant that William Randolph first made sure he had prints of all of those films because they were part of his product and marion davies then donated them to the library of congress so that's the only reason we're going to you're going to get to see these two early borzaghi pictures that andrew's produced for home video and scored i was going to say this all the tom nick situation really makes marion davies Mm. and harold lloyd look especially prescient uh at a time particularly in the late 20s when these films were considered to have no value that the silent era was over and uh, time to throw all this in the scrap heap. And there were some people said, mm, not so fast. Yeah, that it's worth hanging on to. And this is something tying into Kovacs that Edie made sure she held on to and got her hands on as much of Kovacs material as she possibly could. And she, she always said, you know, she said to me a number of times that she knew that the, it was going to, the interest was going to turn back around and, and at some point, people were going to be ready for it. So it was, it was important to hang on to it. So they were also working with Kathy Fuller-Seely on, on a Francis Ford project, uh, Restoring the Craving, and a couple of other shorts. So there's a lot of these home video projects that were kind of percolating during 2021. And suddenly, 
the floodgates opened in January. <laughs> uh, I've, I've already released this, you know, the, the Cheney set will be the, the third thing I've had out this year so far. And there'll be a few other things out by the end of the year. On top of uh, in-person shows that I, I have coming up, I'll be at the Library of Congress on August 20th and on September 2nd for a couple of shows. The Silent Clowns film series does continue every other month. We're back in September and then again in November. I will be at an, some theaters in Pennsylvania in at the end of September. And go go to silentfilmmusic.com and get on my email list. And uh, I will send you an email every week or two, and you'll know where, where you'll find me, online or in person. And we'll have links on the show notes to the upcoming shows. So there's definitely ways to, to stay on top of where, where I'm going to turn up. Well, that's it. That's episode 50 of the Silent Film Music Podcast. It's the podcast that takes you inside the mind of someone as they prepare for, perform, and reflect upon performances of live musical accompaniments to silent film. I'm Ben Modell, a silent film accompanist, historian, and presenter. And I'm here as always, with my co-producer and co-host, Kerr Lockhart. Uh, thanks so much for listening to the Silent Film Music Podcast. Do go on to whatever podcast platform you listen to podcasts on and give the show a rating or a little review. Not because it strokes our ego, but it's the best way you can help get the word out. If you think, boy, I like this. I bet there's other people who would like to have this recommended to them. Posting a rating or a comment on iTunes, etc., uh, helps get the word out and sharing links does as well but we're so glad for your listening uh kerr thanks so much for keeping this podcast moving ahead and moving forward my pleasure we'll be with you again on the next episode of the silent film music podcast somewhere on an mp3 <laughs> in in a device that you listen to thanks for listening to the silent film music podcast with ben modell i'll see you at the silence bye now bye